Chapter 16 of The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph by Henry M. Field. Chapter 16 Victory at Last. Part 1. In these pages we have led our readers through twelve long years, and have had to tell many a tale of disaster and defeat. It is now our privilege to tell of triumphant success. Victory has come at last, but not by the chance of fortune, but by the utmost efforts of man, by the union of science and skill with indomitable perseverance. The failure of the last year was a sad disappointment, but so far from damping the courage of those embarked in the enterprise, it only roused them to a more gigantic effort. They were now to prepare for a fifth expedition. In this they set themselves to anticipate every possible emergency and to combine the elements of success so as to render failure impossible. The Great Eastern herself, which they had come to regard with a kind of fondness, a feeling of affection and pride, as the ark that was to bear their fortunes across the deep, was made ready for her crowning achievement. For months Captain Anderson and Mr. Halpin, his chief officer, worked day and night to get her into perfect trim. She had become sadly fouled in her many voyages. As she swam the seas, a thousand things clung to her as to a floating island, till her hull was encrusted with mussels and barnacles two feet thick, and long seaweed flaunted from her sides. Like a brave old war-horse, long neglected, she needed a thorough grooming, to have her hair combed and her limbs well rubbed down, to fit her to take the field. But it was not an easy matter to get under the huge creature, to give her such a dressing. Yet Captain Anderson was equal to the emergency. He contrived a simple instrument by which every part of her bottom was raked and scrubbed. Getting rid of this rough, shapeless mass would make her feel easy and comfortable at sea, and add at least a knot an hour to her speed. The boilers, too, were thoroughly cleansed and repaired in every part, and the paddle engines were so arranged that in five minutes they could be disconnected, so that by going ahead with one and backing with the other, the ship could be held perfectly at rest or be turned around in her own length, a very important matter when they should come to fish in deep waters for the broken end of the cable. To prepare for this, she was armed with chains and ropes and irons of the most formidable kind. For grappling the cable, she took on board twenty miles of rope, which would bear a strain of thirty tons, probably the largest fishing line used since the days of Noah. The cable was manufactured at the rate of twenty miles a day, and as fast as delivered and found perfect, was coiled on board. And now the electricians tried their skill to outdo all they had done before. As Captain Anderson observed, it seemed as if never had so much brain power been concentrated on the problem of success. The cable itself furnished the grandest subject of experiment. As every week added more than a hundred miles to its length, there was constant opportunity to try the electric current on longer distances and with new conditions. The results obtained showed the rapid and marvelous progress of electrical science. Said the Times, the science of making, testing, and laying cables has so much improved that an undetected fault in an insulated wire has now become literally impossible, while so much are the instruments for signaling improved that not only can a slight fault be disregarded if necessary, but it is even easy to work through a submarine wire with a foot of its copper conductor stripped and bare to the water. This latter result, astonishing as it may appear, has actually been achieved for some days past with the whole Atlantic cable on board the Great Eastern. Out of a length of more than 1,700 miles, a coil has been taken from the center, the copper conductor stripped clean of its insulation for foot in length, and in this condition lowered over the vessel's side till it rested on the ground. Yet through this the clearest signals have been sent, 
so clear indeed as at one time to raise the question whether it would be not worth while to grapple for the first old atlantic cable ever laid and with these new instruments working gently through it for a year or so at least make it pay cost as other things were on the same gigantic cable by the time the big ship had her cargo and stores on board she was well laden of the cable alone there were two thousand four hundred miles coiled in three immense tanks as the year before of this seven hundred and forty-eight miles were a part of the cable of the last expedition the tanks alone with the water in them weighed over a thousand tons and the cable which they held four thousand tons more besides which she had to carry eight thousand five hundred tons of coal and five hundred tons of telegraph stores making fourteen thousand tons besides engine rigging etc which made nearly as much more so enormous was the burden that it was thought prudent not to take on board all her coal before she left the medway especially as the channel was winding and shallow it was therefore arranged that about a third of her coal should be taken in at berryhaven on the southwest coast of ireland with this exception her lading was complete the time for departure had been fixed for the last day of june and so admirable had been the arrangements and such the diligence of all concerned that exactly at the hour of noon she loosened from her moorings and began to move it was well that she had not on board her whole cargo for as it was she drew nearly thirty-two feet never had any keel pressed so deep in those waters it required skilful handling to get her safely to the sea gently and softly she floated down over bars where she almost grazed the sand where but a few inches lifted her enormous hull above the river's bed but at length the rising tide bears her safely over and she is afloat in the deeper waters of the channel at first the sea did not give her a very gracious welcome the wind was dead ahead and the waves dashed furiously against her but she kept steadily on tossing their spray on high as if they had struck against the rocks of Eddystone Lighthouse. In four or five days she had passed down the Irish coast, and was quietly anchored in the harbour of Berryhaven, where she was soon joined by the other vessels of the squadron. The telegraph fleet was not the same as that of the last year. The government could spare but a single ship, but the terrible, which had accompanied the Great Eastern on the former expedition, was still there to represent the majesty of England. The William Corey, a vessel of two thousand tons, bore the ponderous shore-end, which was to be laid out thirty miles from the Irish coast, while the Albany and the Medway were ships chartered by the company. The latter carried several hundred miles of the last year's cable, besides one of heavier proportions, ninety miles long, to be stretched across the mouth of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. While the Great Eastern remained at Berryhaven to take in her final stores of coal, the William Corey proceeded around the coast of Valentia to lay the shore end. She arrived off the harbor on the morning of Saturday, the 7th of July, and immediately began to prepare for her heavy task. This shore end was of tremendous size, weighing twenty tons to the mile. It was by far the strongest wire cable ever made, and in short lengths was stiff as an iron bar. As the year before, the cable was to be brought off on a bridge of boats, reaching from the ship to the foot of the cliff. All the fishermen's boats were gathered from along the shore, while HMS Raccoon, which was guarding that part of the coast, sent up her boats to help, so that, as they all mustered in line, there were forty of them, making a long pontoon bridge, an Irish boatman with eager looks and strong hands was standing along the line to grasp the ponderous chain. All went well, and by one o'clock the cable was landed, and its end brought up the cliff to the station. The signals were found to be perfect, and the William Corey then slowly drew off to sea, unlimbering her stiff shore end till she had cast over the whole thirty miles. At three o'clock next morning she telegraphed through the cable that her work was done, and she had buoyed the end in water a hundred fathoms deep. Describing the scene, the correspondent on the London News says, In its leading features it presented a striking difference to the ceremony of last year. 
earnest gravity and a deep-seated determination to repress all show of the enthusiasm of which everybody was full was very manifest the excitement was below instead of above the surface speech-making hurrahing public congratulations and vaunts of confidence were as it seemed avoided as if on purpose there was nothing far more touching in the quiet and reverent solemnity of the spectators yesterday than in the slight boisterous joviality of the peasantry last year nothing could prevent the scene being intensely dramatic but the prevailing tone of the drama was serious instead of comic and triumphant the old crones in tattered garments who cowered together dudheen in mouth their gaudy coloured shawls tightly drawn over head and under the chin the barefooted boys and girls who by long practice walked over sharp and jagged rocks which cut up boots and shoes with perfect impunity the men at work uncovering the trench and winding in a single file up and down the hazardous path cut by the cablemen in the otherwise inaccessible rock the patches of bright colour furnished by the red petticoats and cloaks the ragged garments only kept from falling to pieces by bits of string and tape the good old parish priest who exercises mild and gentle spiritual sway over the loving subjects of whom the ever-popular knights of Kerry is the temporal head looking on benignly from his car the bright eyes supple figures and innocent faces of the peasant lasses and the earnestly hopeful expression of all made up a picture impossible to describe with justice add to this the startling abruptness with which the tremendous cliffs stand flush out of the water the alternations of bright wild flowers and patches of verdure with the most desolate barrenness the mountain sheep indifferently cropping the short sweet grass and the undercurrent of consciousness of the mighty interests at stake and few scenes will seem more important and interesting than that of yesterday as the ships are now ready for sea and all who are under embark have come on board we may look about us at the personnel of the expedition who are here we recognize many old familiar faces that we have seen in former campaigns gallant men who have had so many a sea fight in this peaceful war first the eye seeks the tall form of captain anderson there he is modest and grave a few words but seeing everything watching everything and ruling everything with a quiet power and there is his second officer mr halpin who keeps a sharp lookout after the crew to see that every man does his duty while he thus keeps watch of all on board staff commander moriarty r n comes on deck with instruments in hand to look after the heavenly bodies and reckon the ship's latitude and longitude this is an old veteran in the service who has been on all the expeditions and it will be quite improper even if it were possible for a cable to be laid across the atlantic without his presence and aid but here comes mr canning the engineer whose deep-sea soundings the last year were on a scale of such magnitude and who if he cannot well dive deeper means to pull stronger the next time that slight form yonder is Professor Thompson, of Glasgow, a man who in his knowledge of the subtle element to be brought into play, and the enthusiasm he brings to its study, is the very genius of electrical science. And this is Mr. Varley, who seems to have the lightning in his fingers, and to whom the world owes some marvelous discoveries of the laws of electricity. Mr. Willoughby Smith, a worthy associate in these studies and discoveries, goes out on the ship as an electrician. And here is Mr. Glass, the managing director of the telegraph construction and maintenance company which is undertaken by contract to manufacture this cable and lay it safely across the ocean and mr gooch chairman of the company that owns the great eastern two gentlemen to whom the atlantic telegraph is under the greatest obligation and since it was they who six months before when the project seemed in danger of being given up or postponed for years took mr field by the hand and cheered him on to a last effort blessings on their hearts of oak mr gooch accompanies the ship while Mr. Glass, keeping Mr. Varley at his side as an electrician, remains on shore to receive reports of the daily progress of the expedition, 
and to issue his orders. What a post of observation was that telegraph house on the cliffs of Valentia! It commanded a far broader horizon than the top of Fiesole, from which Galileo looked down on the valley of the Arno, and up at the stars. Was there ever a naval commander favored with a power of vision that could sweep the boundless sea? What would Nelson have said if he had had a spyglass with which he could watch ships in action two thousand miles away, and issued his orders to a fleet on the other side of the ocean? With such a long range he might almost have fought the Battle of the Nile from his home in England. Standing on such a spot, and surrounded by such men, representing the capital, the science, and the skill of England, with all those gallant ships in sight, one's heart might well beat high. But there were other reflections that sat in the hour, and caused some at least to look once more on the rocks of Valentia with deep emotion. Some of their old companions in arms had fallen out of the ranks, while the battle was not yet won. Brett, Mr. Field's first friend in England, was in his grave. Beyond the Atlantic, Captains Hudson and Berryman slept the sleep that knows no waking. They were not forgotten by their survivors, who mourned that those who had toiled with them in former days were not here to share their triumph. The feeling, therefore, of many on this occasion was not one elate with pride and hope, but subdued by serious thoughts and tender memories. In harmony with this feeling, and with the great work which they were about to undertake, it was proposed that before the expedition sailed, they should hold a solemn religious service. Was there ever a fitter place or a fitter hour for prayer than here, in the presence of the great sea, to which they were about to commit their lives and their precious trust? The first expedition ever sent forth had been consecrated by prayer. On that very spot, nine years before, all heads were uncovered, and all forms bent low, at the solemn words of supplication. And there had the Earl of Carlisle, since gone to his honored grave, cheered them on with high religious popes, describing the shifts which were sent forth on such a mission, as beautiful upon the waters, as were the feet upon the mountains of them that published the gospel of peace. In such a spirit, two of the directors, Mr. Bevan of London and Mr. Bewley of Dublin, sent invitations to a number of persons to meet at Valentia, as the expedition was about to sail, and commended to the favor of Almighty God. Captain Anderson had greatly desired to be with them at this parting service, but the ships were at Berehaven, and they were just embarking for sea. But though the officers could not be present, a large company came together said an irish paper men of different religious denomination and of various professions in life irishmen englishmen and scotchmen join in such a service as has never been held in this island it was a scene long to be remembered as they bowed together before the god and father of all their brethren who were about to go down to the sea in ships felt their dependence on a higher power their preparations were complete all that man could do was done they had exhausted every resource of science and skill the issue now remained with him who controls the winds and waves. Therefore was it most fit that, at the very moment of embarking, those who remained behind should, as it were, kneel upon the cliff, and with outstretched hands commit them to him who alone spreadeth out the heavens and ruleth the raging of the sea. In all this there is something of antique stamp, something which makes us think of the sublime men of an earlier and better time, of the pilgrim fathers kneeling on the deck of their little ship at Leyden, as they were about to seek a refuge and a home in the forests of the new world, and of Columbus and his companions celebrating a solemn service before their departure from Spain. And so with labor and with prayer did this great expedition go forth once more from the shores of Ireland, bearing the hopes of science and of civilization, with courage and skill looking out from the bow across the stormy waters, and a religious faith like that of Columbus standing at the helm. On Friday morning, the 13th of July, the fleet finally bade adieu to the land. Was Friday an unlucky day? Some of the sailors thought so, and would have been glad to leave a day before or after. 
but Columbus sailed on Friday and discovered the New World on Friday. And so this expedition put to sea on Friday, and, as a good providence would have it, reached land on the other side of the Atlantic on the same day of the week. As the ships disappeared below the horizon, Mr. Glass and Mr. Varley went up on their watchtower, not to look, but to listen for the first voice from the sea. The ships bore away from the buoy where lay the end of the shoreline, but the weather was thick and foggy, with frequent bursts of rain, and they could not see far on the water. For an hour or two they went sailing round and round, like seagulls in search of prey. At length the Albany caught sight of the buoy tossing on the waves, and firing a signal gun bore down straight upon it. The cable was soon hauled up from its bed, a hundred fathoms deep, and brought over the stern the Great Eastern, and the watchers on shore, who had been waiting with some impatience, saw the first flash, and Varley read, "'Got the shore end! All right! Going to make the splice!' Then all was still, and they knew that that delicate operation was going on. Quick, nimble hands tore off the covering from some yards of the shore end of the main cable, till they came to the core. Then, swiftly unwinding the copper wires, they laid them together, twining them as closely and carefully as a silken braid. Thus stripped and bare, this newborn child of the sea was wrapped in swaddling clothes, covered up with many coatings of gutta-percha and hempen rope, and strong iron wires. The whole bound round and round with heavy bands, and the splicing was complete. Signals were now sent through the whole cable on board the Great Eastern, and back to the telegraph house of Valentia, and the whole length— two thousand four hundred and forty nautical miles was reported perfect and so with light hearts they bore away it was a little after three o'clock as they turned to the west the following was the order of battle the terrible went ahead standing off on the starboard bow to keep other vessels out of the course the medway was on the port and the albany on the starboard quarter ready to pick up or let go a buoy or to do other work that might be required all these ships were to keep their allotted positions with signaling distance of the great eastern and at any time that she was heard firing guns, they were to close in with her to render assistance. Their course lay thirty miles to the south of that of the last year, so that there could be no danger in fishing for the old cable of disturbing the new. Dr. Russell, the brilliant historian of the expedition of 1865, was not on board the Great Eastern this year. He had left England a few weeks before for the scene of the war in Germany. His place was supplied by Mr. John C. Dean, the secretary of the Anglo-American Company whose diary of the expedition furnishes a faithful record of the incidents of this memorable voyage. If the story be not quite so thrilling as that of the year before, it is because it has not to tell of such fatal accidents. It has the monotony of success. A few pages from this diary, giving its most important portions, will render this narrative complete. The voyage began with good weather and every omen of success. Friday, indeed, was a day of fog and rain. At the very time they were making the splice with the shore end, the rain was pouring on the deck. But in a few hours it cleared off, and Saturday and Sunday, Mr. Field writes in his journal, Weather fine. On Monday, calm, beautiful day. Signals perfect. Owing to the improved system adopted by the chief electrician, communication with the shore was kept up even while the tests for insulation were going on. Footnote A. The new method is thus explained by Mr. Dean. The fundamental difference between last year's system of testing and that of the present expedition is that now all the ordinary tests for continuity may be made simultaneously with the test for insulation, which is not interrupted at all, whereas last year, during half the time spent in laying the cable, the insulation test was wholly neglected. Last year each hour was divided into four parts. The first half of the hour was spent in testing for insulation. During the second half, which was divided into three periods of ten minutes each, Tests were made to ascertain the resistance of the conductor, and to prove the continuity of the same. All these tests were of such a nature as to afford no criterion whatever 
of the state of the insulation during their continuance, so that during the half of each hour, or, in other words, during half the time spent in laying the cable, the insulation test was neglected. Also, while the insulation test was being made, there were no means of communicating with the shore, as the observations were taken on board only. This year a test for insulation is constantly kept on, and by Mr. Willoughby Smith's arrangement, corresponding observations are made both on ship and shore. At stated times during the hour, the continuity test is made at the shore station by means of a condenser applied to the conductor of the cable. The effect of this is to increase the deflection on the ship's insulation galvanometer, thus serving as a continuity test. Communications from shore to ship are also made by these means. The ship can send signals to the shore by simply reversing the current for certain lengths of time, answering to some understood code, or by increasing and diminishing the tension of the line, according to a prearranged plan. All these operations may be performed without interrupting the insulation test, except for a few seconds while the current is being reversed, so far for the new system in the electrical room as compared with last year. End footnote. Every possible precaution was taken to guard against such accidents as had marred the success of the year before. Remembering how small a thing had sufficed to puncture the cable, the men in the tank were not allowed to wear boots or shoes with nails in their heels, but were cased from head to foot in canvas dresses, drawn over their ordinary sailor costume, and with slippers on their feet, they glided about softly as ghosts. But we turned to Mr. Dean's diary for a record of the progress from day to day. Sunday, July 15th. All through yesterday the paying-out machinery worked so smoothly, the electrical tests were so perfect, the weather was so fine that fresh confidence in the ultimate result had been naturally inspired. The recollection, however, of the reverses of the expedition of 1865 is always before those who have the greatest reliance of success, and there is a quiet repose about the manner of the chief practical men on board, which is an earnest that they will not allow themselves to be carried away by the smoothness of twenty-four hours' events. The convoy kept their position accurately during the day. The terrible signaled that a man had fallen overboard. Her cutter was speedily lowered. The sailor had, however, laid hold of a rope thrown to him from the frigate before the boat reached him. Monday. Still everything going on well. The sea like a mill-pond. The paying out of the cable from the after-tank progressing with uniformity and steadiness, and electrical tests perfect. Our track is about thirty miles to the south of that of last year and at that distance we passed parallel to where the telegraph cable parted in August 1857. Our average speed has been about five knots. We are obliged to stop the screw engines in order to bring down to that speed, and moreover to reduce the paddle-boiler power. Captain Anderson's ingenious mode of cleaning the ship's bottom, which he carried out last winter at Sheerness, has proved to have effected this very desirable object. Mr. Beckwith, the engineer, is now unable to regulate and adjust her speed, and get more out of the ship than he could last year but her bottom was one encrusted mass of muscles. Tuesday. Another twenty-four hours of uninterrupted success. All day yesterday was so calm that the masts of our convoy were reflected in the ocean, an unusual thing to see. A large shoal of porpoises gambled about us for half an hour, a glorious sunset and later a crescent moon, which we hope to see in the brightness of our fall, lighting our way into Trinity Bay before the days of this July shall have ended. But the whole night did not pass away so tranquilly. By midnight the rain fell fast, and the wind blew fiercely, and then occurred the only real alarm of the voyage. The scene is thus described by Mr. Dean. All went on well until twenty minutes past twelve a.m., Greenwich time, when the first real shock was given to the success which has hitherto attended us. In this time we had real cause to be alarmed. A foul flake took place in the after-tank. The engines were immediately as turned astern, and the paying out of the cable stopped. 
We were all soon on deck, and learned that the running or paying out part of the coil had caught three turns of the flake immediately under it, carried them into the eye of the coil, fouling the layout, and hauling up one and a half turns from the outside, and five turns in the eye of the underflake. This was stopped, fortunately, before entering the paying out machinery. Stoppers of hemp also were put on near the V-wheel astern, and Mr. Canning gave orders to stand by to let go the boy. This was not very cheering to hear, but his calm and collected manner gave us all confidence that his skill and experience would extricate the cable from the obvious danger in which it was placed. No fishing line was ever entangled worse than the rope was when thrust up in apparently hopeless knots from the eye of the coil to the deck. There at last five hundred feet of rope lay in this state, in the midst of thick rain and increasing wind. The cable crews set to work under their chief engineer's instructions to disentangle it. Mr. Halpin was there too, patiently following the bites as they showed themselves, the crew now passing them forward, now aft, until at last the character of the tangle was seen, and soon it became apparent that ere long the cable would be cleared. All this time Captain Anderson was at the taffrail, anxiously watching the strain on the rope, which he could scarcely make out. The night was so dark, and endeavouring to keep it up and down, going on and reversing with paddle and screw. When one reflects for a moment upon the size of the ship and the enormous mass she presents to the wind, the difficulty of keeping her astern, under the circumstances, over the cable, can be appreciated. The port paddle-wheel was disconnected, but shortly afterward there was a shift of wind, and the vessel cantered the wrong way. Welcome voices were now heard passing the word off from the tank that the bites were cleared and to pay out. Then the huge stoppers were gently loosened, and at five minutes past two a.m., to the joy of all, we were once more discharging the cable. They veered it away in the tank to clear away the foul flake until three a.m., when the screw and paddle engines were slowed so as to reduce the speed of the ship to four and a half knots. During all this critical time there was an entire absence of noise and confusion. Every order was silently obeyed, and the cable men and crew worked with hearty good will. Mr. Canning has had experience of foul flakes before, and showed that he knew what to do in the emergency. But what of the electrical condition of the cable during this period? Simply that through its entire length it was perfect. Thus, after three anxious hours, the danger was passed, and the next morning the report of the ship is, A fresh breeze from the southward, a dull grey sky, with occasional rain and a moderate sea. Thursday. There was a fresh breeze in the afternoon yesterday, increasing toward evening. It brought a heavy swell on the port quarter, which caused the ship to roll. The paying out from the after tank went on steadily. Two of the large boys were lifted by Derrick from the deck into the bows of the ship, and placed in position on the port and starboard side of the forward pickup machinery, ready for letting go if necessary. The sun went down with an angry look, and the scud came rapidly from the eastward, the sea rising. A wind dead aft is not the best for cable laying, particularly if any accident should take place. By half-past eleven to-night we shall have exhausted the contents of the after-tank, and the cable will then be paid out from the fore-tank along the trough to the stern, the distance from the centre of the tank to the paying-out machinery being four hundred and ninety-four feet. Last night the swell was very heavy, to which the Great Eastern proved herself not insensible. Her rolling, like everything else appertaining to her, is done on a grand scale. We see the liveliness with which that operation is performed on board the Albany and Medway, and we are not at all disposed to be too critical in our observations on our own movements. The speed of the ship was kept at four and a half during the night. The slower the better is the opinion of all on board. Festina Lente we are consuming about one hundred tons a day of the seven thousand tons of coal which we had on board when we left Berehaven, and Mr. Beckworth, who has been engineer of the Great Eastern from her first voyage to the present moment, 
says her engines were never in better order, and their appearance and working do him and his able staff of assistant engineers the greatest credit. Friday. Yesterday was a day of complete success, the paying out in every respect satisfactory. The wind still from the eastward, but inclined to draw to the northward, the sea entirely gone down. As Mr. Canning told us, we should see the after-tank emptied at eleven o'clock, ship's time. We were all collected there about ten o'clock, by which time the cable was down to the last flake. Next to having daylight for changing from the after to the fore-tank, we could not have had a more favorable time. Clear starlight, no wind, and a smooth sea. Looking down into the tank, the scene was highly picturesque. The cable watch, whose figures were lighted up by the lamps suspended from above, slowly and cautiously lifted the turns of the coil to ease their path to the eye. As each found its way to the drum, the wooden floor of the tank showed itself, and then we saw more floor, and as its area increased the cable swept along its surface with a low subdued noise, until, with a graceful curve, it mounted to the outlet, where it was soon to join a fresh supply. And now we hear the word pass that they have arrived at the last turn, and the men who stood on the stages of the platform of the eye with the bite watch the arrival of the cable and pass it up with tender caution until it reaches the summit. Then it rushes down a wooden incline to meet the spliced rope, which had by this time come down along the trough leading from the forward tank. This operation was conducted with great skill by Mr. Canning and his experienced assistants, Messrs. Clifford and Temple. At eleven minutes past one a.m. Greenwich time, the fresh rope was going over the stern, and the screw engines going ahead at thirteen minutes past one. A watch of four men is now stationed, fore and aft, all along the trough, which is illuminated by many lamps at short distances from each other. A lamp with a green light indicates the mile mark as it comes up from the tank, and this signal is repeated until it reaches the stern, where it is recorded by the clerk who keeps the cable log in an office adjoining the paying-out machinery. A red lamp indicates danger. During the daytime, red and blue flags are used. All through the night the sea was smooth as glass, and by this morning we saw that a sensible impression had been made on the contents of the fore-tank. The ship begins to lighten at the bows, and by this time tomorrow will come up more as the cable passes out of the tank. Saturday. Yesterday was our seventh day of paying out cable, and so far we have been more fortunate than the expedition of last year. During the same period of 1865, two faults had occurred, one on the 24th of July, the other on the 29th, causing a detention of 56 hours. At 3 p.m. we were halfway, and passed with the Atlantic Cable of 1858 parted twice on the 26th and 28th of June. Sad memories to many. We feel, however, that every hour is increasing our chance of effecting this great work. I believe we shall do it this time, Jack, I heard one of our crews say to another last night. I believe so too, Bill, was the reply, and if we don't, we deserve to do it, and that's all. It blew very hard from two o'clock yesterday up to ten p.m., by which time the wind gradually found its way from southwest to northwest, which is right ahead, just what we want for cable laying. The Terrible and the two other ships plunged into the very heavy sea, which the southwester raised, and we made up our minds, from what we saw, that the Great Eastern is the right ship to be in, in a gale of wind. During the night, heavy showers of rain. This morning the sea was comparatively smooth, and the sky showed welcome patches of bright blue. If all goes well, we shall be up tomorrow evening at the place where last year's cable parted. A couple of days will bring us to shallower water, and then we may fairly look out for our heart's content. Messages come from England with the news regularly and speedily. Excellent practice for the clerks on shore and on board ship. Great comfort to us, and the best evidence to those who will read this journal, of the great fact that up to this time the cable is doing its electric work efficiently. 
The interest of the voyage was greatly increased by the news daily received from Europe. Though in the middle of the Atlantic, they were still joined with the old world, and messages came to the Great Eastern Telegraph, as regularly as to the Times in London, reporting the quotations of the Stock Exchange, the debates in Parliament, and all the news of home. But what was far more exciting was the tidings of the great events transpiring on the continent. While the expedition had been preparing in England, a war had broken out of tremendous magnitude. Austria, Prussia, and Italy had rushed into the field. Armies, such as had not met since the fatal day of Leipzig, stood in battle array, and the thunder of war was echoing and re-echoing among the mountains of Bohemia. Amid these convulsions the fleet set sail, but it was still linked with the nations which it left behind, and received tidings from day to day. What great events were thus heralded to them in mid-ocean may be seen by a few items gleaned from the numerous dispatches. End of Part 1 of Chapter 16 Recorded by Alex C. Talander www.bookbanter.net